Everything in ancient Greece came under the auspices of a particular god, and the god controlling theatre was called Dionysus. He was also the god of wine and revelry. And many scholars think that theatre evolved directly out of the choral songs performed in honour of Dionysus. This region was once home to the ancient Athenian silver mines, but it is also the site of the oldest stone-built theatre in the Greek world. This is what I've come looking for on this very hot afternoon. And it's Dionysoi to Dionysus. Hupo tis boules. From the Bula, the Bula, the local council controlling this deem here in Attica. And it's to Dionysus because, yes, you guessed it, we're in a theatre, a theatre, the space of Dionysus, the privileged seats for the distinguished local clientele and the stage set out before us. Every year, the democratic authorities spent a fortune on the great Dionysia Festival a drama competition that took place in the Theatre of Dionysus in honour of the god of theatre. The festival began with a procession, a rowdy affair with feasting, drinking and a great crowd of people parading through the streets with a statue of the god and a small herd of sacrificial animals. When it reached the altar of the twelve Olympian gods in the marketplace, the first thing that happened was a holy dance. The cult of Dionysus is um, very um, much a um, psychological thing. Um, you know, wine was, of course, very important for Dionysus. Everybody knows that. By drinking wine, you are getting closer to the god. And the more wine you drink, the more you step out of yourself and get closer to the god. And that is also um, what happens when, when you're dancing. You're getting outside yourself. But also by, for example, wearing a mask. Um, the ancient people thought that when you're wearing a mask, you really become someone else. And the Greek word is? is it's ecstasy. So ek, out, stasis of oneself, of one's stance. Yes, yes. And, and that's our ecstasy. It is the ecstasy, yeah, as we know it. The ecstasy of the gods. Yes. Well, today we've got a brand new series called Clash of the Titans, and we're specifically going to look at the god Dionysus. You know, I remember when I was in sixth grade, my mom had me doing a parent, you know, one of those parent-teacher type things, and she was in charge of selling raffle tickets. So she told me if I went around to all my neighbors and sold raffle tickets, that she'd buy me one raffle ticket myself. Well, the day came for the, the reaching in and who got third prize, $100 worth of groceries, and someone won. Then $250 worth of groceries for second place, somebody won. But then they reached in for grand prize, and my raffle ticket came out. I was the winner of the grand prize, which was a laser disc player. Now, in case you missed this particular time in history, between VHS and DVD was a laser disc player. It was a, a DVD about this big, and it came with one DVD. And it was Tron. I watched a lot of Tron growing up. But I found a rental place, and the only other Laserdisc I ever watched was Clash of the Titans. In case you didn't see that back in 1981, it was known as that cheesy Greek uh, Clash of the Titans that had the mechanical owl. That's what it was known for. And I remember just being intrigued by these myths and these stories and the special effects at the time. And I had no idea in my mind that the world of Jesus, that I was learning about in Sunday school, ever came in contact with the myths I heard about and saw in movies like Clash of the Titans or Percy Jackson. 
And yet, actually, Jesus comes into history. He lives during a time between 4 B.C. and 33, 34 A.D., when the world was obsessed with these myths, obsessed with this culture. He came into a world of the Greek-Roman culture, and there's going to be a clash of ideas, a clash of concepts, and a clash specifically of his claims against each one of the Greek and Roman gods. So we're going to begin today with a claim that Jesus came into a world where the Greeks and Romans would say, I know exactly who the vine is. The vine that provides the wine is Dionysus. Dionysus. And Jesus comes into that world and says, no, 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 I am the vine. I am the source of life. And one vine leads to sour grapes. But another vine leads to fine wine. And my claim is going to come face to face with a clash of an idea that you've grown up under. So we're going to look at some wines and we're going to look at some vines together. As we do that, I think many people think, oh, when you get serious about Jesus, that's the antithesis to living. That's the antithesis to passion. That's the antithesis to fun. That's the antithesis to life. Being serious about the Bible, being serious about religion, being serious about God or Christ, you become a finger-wagging, rule-keeping prude. That's not life. Yet Jesus comes and says, I have come that you may have life and life more abundant by following me. And don't all of us have a sense that we need a life vine, a source of strength, some source of peace? Now, you might say my source of peace is my identity. I feel like I'm a good mom. Your source of peace or your source of vine might be how you feel about your career. Whatever it is, we all have some source. And Jesus says, whatever source you have, I have a greater source that brings ultimate meaning to your life. Only my source is not based on myth. It was rooted in history. And so you can have a belief that you don't just wish is true, you can know it is true, because it's rooted in the facts. So let's begin by looking at, at some, the wines, the, the, the products that were coming out during the time of the Greek Romans. Dionysus was the, son of, was the son of God. He was the son of Zeus. So Dionysus already was known as the son of God. Now that didn't limit him much, because Zeus got around quite a bit, so he had lots of sons. But if you were to ask people in the Greek <laughs> Roman culture, they would say <coughs> Dionysus is the son of God and he is the vine. To keep track of who's who, I've, I've reduced all of the Greek gods down to about nine of them. Just so you can keep track of who's who. We'll put them up on the screen here behind me. Of the Olympians, we have Demeter. She was known as the bread. Her Roman name is Cyrus. I'll just give you the Greek names. Demeter, if you ask people in the Greek culture, I am the bread. Hades, I am the gate. Of hell. Zeus, I am the father, and he fathered a lot of people, let me tell you. The Olympians, Apollo, I am the light, son of Zeus. Dionysus, I am the vine. Athena, I am the truth. Hermes, I am the messenger. And then they have some children. Apollo has a son named Asclepius, I am the living water. And Hermes has a son, Pan, who is, I am the shepherd. So that's interesting. Or maybe you're getting nervous. If you have any biblical knowledge or grew up in the Bible, you might be getting a little nervous because if all these statements, I am the bread, I am the gate, I am the shepherd, I am the truth, were already in operation before Jesus got here, Jesus claims to be the bread, and he claims to be the light, and he claims to be the living water. Did Jesus and the Christians just copy off of these Greek myths and said, hey, we're Greek myth 2.0? 
is the Bible losing its credibility? It just found the myths that were in place and said, hey, we got a better myth than you. Our God is bigger than your God. See, I want to address this objection in two ways, and we'll address it throughout the series. But I think this is a real one for us or certainly for our kids as well. I was at Starbucks about six months ago. A college student had just come home from college for the first time, was really struck by learning about the Greek and Roman myths to find out that Christianity sounded an awful lot like them. Her college professor said, don't you see that Christianity just took all the stuff that was going on at the time and just remade it in their image. You can't believe in Jesus any more than you can believe in Zeus or Dionysus or Athena. They're nice stories, but not necessarily true. And I explained to her some of the things I'm going to share with you. And here's the first point. Contextualization is not imitation. What does that mean? Every good salesperson, every good business person, every good communicator, every good sales or marketing person knows that the way to get your message across is to frame it in the context that your audience understands. In other words, you move from the known to the unknown. So a good communicator would come and say, hey, you've got a God who claims to be the light. I am like him in this way. I'm the light, but I'm also different in this way. You start with what your audience knows and you move from the known to the unknown. If you're in education, you know the difference between general knowledge and moving up to the point of contrast, synthesis and analysis. So Jesus is a master teacher. So are the disciples. So they come into a culture who understands these myths and Jesus does specific miracles aimed directly at these myths. And the writer, John and other apostles, frame his context in a way that they could understand. And says, in the same way, Jesus is like this God in this way, but he's very unlike the God in this way. You know, salespeople know that if you don't get your message in the proper context, it can really be disastrous. And that is why what we have learned in business over the years in sales and marketing, the disciples knew how to contextualize 2,000 years ago. Here's what happens when marketing goes bad. HBAC Bank, for example, in 2009, they spent $5 million, and they had a, a, bill, a campaign for their company, and it was the Assume Nothing Bank. Assume Nothing Bank. That was their message. But as it got translated into other cultures, something got lost in translation. Assume Nothing translated into many cultures as the Do Nothing Bank. And they had to scrap $5 million worth of advertising because they didn't frame their message in a context that that particular culture could understand. Now, you don't change the message, but you do frame it into a context so it's clear in communication. KFC in the 1980s wanted to compete in China. And their, if you remember, their slogan at the time was, finger looking good. Only when that got translated into Chinese, it came across as, eat your fingers good. <laughs> Coors had a slogan, it was a turn it loose campaign. Turn it loose, drink Coors. Only when it got translated into Spanish, the phrase turn it loose is a euphemism for having diarrhea. <laughs> so not a lot of sales in Spain uh, during that time, unless you want to drink diarrhea if you're constipated or something. Uh, another one, uh, Pampers, when they first began to advertise in Japan, they had a stork on the front of the, of the uh, labeling, and it wasn't selling well, and they couldn't figure out why. Until they discovered that in Japan, they do not have a folklore or a myth about storks bringing babies. In their culture, it, children come on giant peaches, I understand. So what they had to do is they had to change, not the message, not the product, but they had to frame the product in the culture that it was being communicated to, to make people understand it better. 
And that is why what Jesus does with his specific miracles, what the writers do in communicating is so masterful as a communicator. They discovered what many companies have learned the hard way. Contextualization is not imitation. The second question I think we come to is, well, who copied who here? Again, if you come across a, a, a college professor or a history channel, they may frame it this way. You don't believe in the Bible or Jesus because, let me give you the facts. They might pull out a timeline and say Jesus was around 33 A.D. The disciples were around 70 A.D., 30 to 70. They were writing. Therefore, here's where we get the books of the Bible. But Alexander the Great made Greek-Roman myth and all those religions popular as far back as 300 B.C. In fact, Homer wrote the Iliad all about these Greek myths as early as 750 B.C. So when Jesus says, I am the light, I am the wine, I am the vine, I am the gate, all he's doing and all his disciples did is copy stuff that was 300 years old. Which is a pretty compelling case. And to you zoom out a little bit farther. When you zoom out a little bit farther, you find out when Jesus claims to be the vine and the, caker, the caretaker of the vineyard, he's not copying the Greeks. He's actually fulfilling something that Moses wrote way back in 1500 B.C. The festival of tabernacles, that God is the one that provides for your, for your vineyards. God is the one that provides you to pray to him, to be the, the caretaker of, of all of your fields. That Jesus is fulfilling something written about in Isaiah that God calls his people the vineyard that he wants to see produce fruit. And now when you zoom the timeline out, you, you don't say, well, the Christians copied off of the Greeks. You actually see that maybe the Greeks got their ideas from the Hebrews. But this frames history in a perfect place for Jesus as a communicator. Because he can show up in time and he can simultaneously address the predictions made by Moses at 1500 B.C. and say, I am the fulfillment of them. While at the exact same time, he can contrast his claims against the gods and the myths of the Greeks. And this sets him up to be a master communicator. Which brings us to our first god today, Dionysus. Dionysus, I got a chance to visit one of his temples in Sardis. This is one of the largest theaters in the world. As you come up in the, in the theater, it holds ten to 14,000 people, overlooks the entire region. There's multiple temples up on the top of this mountain, to Zeus, to Athena. And this particular one at the bottom section is the ruins of the temple to Dionysus. So what would happen is that you would have a, everyone would be seated up in the theater and you would watch the myth of Dionysus acted out. In fact, that is why today he's known as the god of theater, because the first way they were communicating his myth was through theater. It's where the play was born. The guy who wrote the play's name was Thespius, which is why we call actors Thespians. Because he acted out the myth of Dionysus. At the end of the play, you would make your way down to the temple. And you wanted Dionysus, the god of wine, the god of the vine, to provide for you the nectar of the gods, the wine. You lived for the weekend. You lived for wine. Everything was about the wine. So you came up to the temple. And here's what the front door of the temple looks like. So as you walked up to the temple, they would have these giant uh, stone pots that they would fill with water. And you would bring these water pots right into the doorway of Dionysus. And you would close the doors. And you would come back the next day. And the next day, the water in these pots would have been transformed into wine. You would then open the doors. You and everyone would drink of the wine. And it would just be this incredibly immoral revelry. I mean, you were 
Everyone slept with everyone. There was no faithfulness. Men and women and children, all of it was involved in the festival. Incredible, incredible abuse going on to children. But it was okay because the gods gave you the wine, you drank of the wine, and you just got out of yourself. The ecstasy of do whatever you indulge in, do whatever you feel. If you feel it, go ahead and do it. The priests or priestess that would follow in the Dionysus ceremony, as they made their way up there, the women would carry phallic symbols and then escort everyone then from this temple to a banquet hall where there would be a giant orgy that went on. And this was the festival of Dionysus. To which the culture would say, I know exactly what wine is for. I know exactly what the vine is about. And this was the mental image they had. To which Jesus steps in and says, actually, I am the true vine. And yet the wine that I provide for you leads to faithfulness and joy and peace. You can use alcohol without being obsessed by alcohol. You can use money without being obsessed with money. I'm going to give you the kind of freedom that you can enjoy the things in this world without being addicted to it. But Jesus is not referencing or copying the Greeks. He's actually fulfilling a promise that goes way back before Homer's Iliad, written by Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, now let me sing to my well-beloved. See, the gods used people in the Greek-Roman culture. But the God of the Bible loves his people. In fact, he sings over them. He's a loving father, unlike Zeus. Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. I see my people as a beautiful vineyard that I take care of. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up. He worked it. He channeled it. He cleared out the stones. He planted in it his choicest vine. He gave his very best for you, God did. He built a tower in its midst so he could look over the entire vineyard. He also made a wine press in it. And he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But he brought forth wild grapes instead. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard? That I have not done. I did everything I could to put it in a place where it could produce good grapes, good fruit, generosity and gentleness and kindness. I entered history. I came and worked with my people through Moses because I wanted them to know life through me. And the passage continues. He ends by saying this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. So this metaphor long before the Greeks was an idea that the Jewish people understood that they were God's vineyard and he was the vine. He was the vine keeper, the vine dresser. So Jesus steps into a culture and he's going to speak about a fulfillment of something that predated Alexander the Great, predated these things. And he's going to say, the wine that I offer, the life that I offer to drink of me, to drink of my claims, to follow who I am. It does not lead to debauchery. It does not lead to being out of control. It does not lead to addiction. The life that I offer, the wine that I offer, leads to love, joy, peace. You don't have to pretend to put on a mask and be someone you're else in order to be loved and cared for. No, you can be the very best version of yourself and be free from shame and free from insecurity because you know you are made and created by the God of the universe. And by drinking in his purpose and meaning, The wine you partake of is that of incredible families, incredible inner character, incredible relationships as you follow and put in practice the wine that I offer. But in order to understand the wine, you have to go back to the vine. 
What kind of vine do I offer, he says. Well, let me tell you a little about my vine. When John is writing in the book of John, his material is about two-thirds different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke because he's writing specifically to those in the, in the Turkey area, modern-day Turkey, where I get the chance to visit, who are obsessed with these Greek-Roman myths. So he specifically picks, of all the material he had, the material that Jesus enacted that specifically would address the Greek gods. So the first miracle he addresses in John chapter 2 is Jesus turning water into wine. Now, why does he start with that story? Because he's got a culture obsessed with Dionysus, and Dionysus, they had a myth that he turned water into wine, but Jesus actually did it right before witnesses to say, look, there's eyewitness accounts, you heard he could do it, I did it live. And the wine I offered leads to something totally different to what Dionysus leads to. What do you mean? Well, two things. Number one, the secret to life, Jesus would say. And what John would say in this passage is do whatever Jesus says. might seem crazy, but when you learn to forgive your enemies, when you do whatever he says, even though it makes sense, you're freer. When you learn to give instead of take, you're freer. When you learn how to, how to humble yourself so others will exalt you, you become a better leader. In fact, Mary, his mother, they're in this crisis moment at a party. Jesus went to parties. Jesus loved parties. He loved hanging out with people. He loved enjoying people. People loved being with Jesus. He wasn't a prude. He was, in one sense, the life of the party. People loved being with Jesus. He was so real and so authentic. But Mary, they've got a problem. They run out of wine. So Mary gives this advice, which is great advice for life. Mary turned to the servants and says, whatever Jesus says to do, whatever he says to you, do it. That's the secret. Put his words into practice. Do it. So here's what happens. Now, there were set six water pots of stone. And again, John mentions this because the, the myth of Dionysus is that they, as part of his worship, would take stone pots and they bring it into the temple. Well, Jesus took literal pots of water according to the manner of the purification of the Jews. But see, they're not imitating the Greeks. They're going back to the tradition of the Hebrews that the Greeks had imitated. Containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they did. So they reach in, they pull out the water, and they bring it to the master of the feast, probably in a cup. And as they hand it to him, the passage continues and it says this, as the master of the ceremonies took a drink of it, he tasted the water, it was made into wine. He did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water out knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. He said to them, every man at the beginning sets out good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, they bring out the inferior wine. You have kept the good wine until now. And there's several contrasts here. One, where Dionysus' vine was based in myth, Jesus was based in fact. Where many people chase their first high with the, the lifestyle of Dionysus, Jesus says, when you begin to follow me, it doesn't run out. You don't chase that first high. You actually find that my wine lasts. The meaning gets deeper and more meaningful. Your relationships get deeper and more meaningful. You get more and more free as you follow my wine and drink of what I offer. You don't find yourself more and more addicted, more and more out of control, more and more chaos in your lifestyle, more and more chaos in your relationships. As you follow and drink of what I offer, just like at the wedding feast, the best is yet to come. And if you're in the middle of a marriage 
or in the middle of a marriage ceremony and you're like, you know what, I tried that, it's not working out. Jesus says, I offer a strength and a perseverance and a faithfulness that when you're in the middle of a stuck moment, a crisis moment, you're saying, God, I need help. He says, I am there to help you. Just do whatever I ask. And it is the secret to pushing through in the midst of this. I will get you through this if you will drink of what I offer to you. Jesus saves the best for last. And he offers the secrets, the tools you need to develop and improve your relationships in your life. But the second thing he offers, the second thing, the secret to living is, he says, abide in me. Abiding in me is the secret to fine wine. You see, at the end of that ceremony, they would leave the temple and they would travel up the road to where that yellow marker is. And that yellow marker is this scene. I took one picture of it. This is a banquet table that went around the edges. And this is where you would be so drinking in the nectar of the gods, you'd totally lose control. Men, women, children, anyone and everyone was there. Greeks and Romans parties were almost always naked. And in the midst of this party, everyone sleeping with everyone, they bring in a raw meat, raw um, bull, and you would just rip the meat off and eat it raw. And then you'd get sick and throw up. And so they had latrines for people to puke into so you could go back and eat some more. And here, just total out of controlness. In fact, to go to that location today, you'll see it's in utter ruins. In the same way, the lifestyle of following Dionysus leads to utter ruins. It'll, it'll be fun for a while. There's moments of it. I mean, that's the thing about trying these other things. They last for a while, but then they don't satisfy. They don't last. They don't get better as you continue. They get worse. And you end up in ruins. And many of you know that because you grew up in a family where there was somebody who lived this way. And you felt the sting of a father who had an affair. You felt the sting of an alcoholic mom. And they would say it wasn't a big deal. But you felt it day after day. And you'd say, yeah, I felt the ruins of someone living Dionysus wine and not the wine that Jesus offers. I mean, what society would you rather live in? What kind of family would you rather live in? See, Jesus does this miracle at a wedding feast because when you drink of his wine, it leads to marriage. It leads to faithfulness. It leads to passion in its context. It leads to kindness. It leads to family. It leads to nurturing. It leads to a a real vitality in life. That's what his wine leads to. Marriage, not to ruin. Not to disaster. And here's why. When Jesus becomes your source, you're able to enjoy the things of this world. Money, fame, Without having them own you. You can enjoy wine without being controlled by it. Everything else in life, even good things, fame, career, being a good mom, being a good dad, have a good self-image, they never fully satisfy because you always could have done more when they become your source, your vine of life. So this is the ruins versus Jesus says, this is where that ends up if you follow Dionysus. But if you follow me, abiding in me leads to fine wine. I had a friend of mine who, he decided to abide in his career. So much so his career became the thing, his source, his meaning, his purpose, enough so that he began to neglect his family. And after about a year and a half of this, his wife, this is when Facebook first came out, began to reconnect with some old friends. And all of a sudden, she's starting to have at least an emotional affair. And he's suddenly aware that he's given all of his resources. What he's been drinking of is my career is my source. And all of a sudden, his marriage is in trouble. And he realized the neglect he had had and he had been a cause of it. He's like, I have got to stop drinking of my career and drink of something else that helps me prioritize the things I say are important. But seemingly it was too late. Their marriage 
dissolved. He tried to save it over two years. He stayed abstinent, trying to win her back. And then when she initiated divorce, he was so angry. He said, you know, that's it. He tried the weekend relationships and the flings, and he said it was fun for a while. But Chad, it's after a while, it's meaningless. What I want is a relationship. What I want is intimacy. What I want is somebody who wants to share my life with me. And, and yeah, it, it, it drank and it tasted good for a little bit, but it just didn't satisfy. I just find it's all meaningless. Ruins. Versus Jesus says, if you abide in me, I offer something different. So Jesus comes in this culture, and in John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. He doesn't say I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. No, there's lots of fake vines out there. You all know of Dionysus. That's a fake vine. That's not going to get you what you long for. I am the true vine. And my father, just like it said in Isaiah, is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, go back one, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In other words, if you've got some challenge in your life, it might be God challenging and cutting off some things so that you can produce more fruit. He said, I don't want that. I'm fine with the fruit I got. Jesus, says, I love you enough to push you, to challenge you, to get the very best out of you. And I'm going to put you in circumstances because I want the best fruit, the best patience, the best gentleness, the best humility coming out of you. So I, I love you enough to get the best out of you. But I do expect you to produce fruit. He says it three times. Fruit, fruit, fruit. All right, next verse. He goes on. Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, this is, sounds very scary. Okay, if you don't work hard, if you don't do a bunch of good works, you're out of here. That same phrase, takes away, is the same phrase used by the disciples when Jesus does a miracle feeding the 5,000. It says they took away 12 baskets of bread and fish. Same phrase used of Simon, who took up the cross. It doesn't mean you're out of here. It means you lift it up. And if you've been around vineyards or a vine dresser, you'll know that when a vine dresser's put all the time and energy into producing crops, if he sees one of the vines laying in the dirt, it doesn't produce very good fruit. So what he does is he takes it away from the dirt. He'll set it up on a rock. He'll brush it off. He'll put it in a place where it can produce fruit. And if you say, well, I have not been a churchgoer. I have not been doing the things God asked me to do. I've been drinking of cups of career and, 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 and building my whole relationship and neglecting things. And God, God, I'm not producing the kind of fruit I should. Here's what this vine dresser is like. He comes to you right now where you're at and says, here, let me brush you off. Let me take you away from the dirt and let me put you in a place where you can produce fruit. Let me care for you. Let me work with you. Let me teach you how to abide in me. He continues. He says that it may bear more fruit. He's going to take you away from the dirt and the grime and lift you up so you can produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. He's talking to his disciples. And this is why the message of Jesus, the message of grace is so powerful. Every other religion is try hard, work really hard, maybe you can produce some fruit and God will maybe one day accept you. Jesus says, my message is you can already be clean. Now what you've done or what you're not doing, I can wash you. I can wash you of the past, the present, the future. I'll clean it all up. And when you know you're fully clean, fully accepted by God, fully accepted by this vine, 
you then can say, God, because you already accept me, I can be honest about my weaknesses. Because you already love me, I can be honest that I really blew it here. Because I know you've already forgiven me of this. Only grace allows you to be honest about your, your, your hiccups and your mess-ups and your screw-ups. Because you know God already loved you. You don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to put on that Dionysus mask and pretend you're something you're not. You can say, this is me. This is who I am. And God, thank you that you love me as I am. But thank you that you love me enough to not leave me where I am, but to lift me up, to wash me, and to put me in a place that I can produce better fruit. And yet all the credit goes to him. Look what he says next part of the verse. Abide in me and I in you. Reside, live in me, connect with me. Let my words reside in your heart as you're going through life. As you begin to put these things into practice, be anxious for no things. God cares about me. You begin to talk truth to yourself. In fact, this idea of abiding in me came right out of the Dionysus feast. When you took the wine, you'd be saying, I am taking Dionysus into me. Mm. And I am now in Dionysus. Jesus says, when you connect with me, when you believe in me, when you begin to live my words out, you are taking me into you, but you become part of me. And as you do that, my peace becomes your peace. My fruit becomes your fruit. My joy becomes your joy. And now you have access to a power source you didn't have access to before. That's what I'm offering here to you. a book called The Secret of the Vine by Bruce Wilkerson. He was talking to a woman named Catherine. She said, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I don't see a lot of fruit in my life. I believe in Jesus. I guess I'm going to heaven, but I just don't feel the joy. I don't feel the peace. I don't feel any of that. He talked for a little bit. He says, do you feel like you're abiding in Christ? She goes, what does that mean? Are you letting his words live in you? And are you living in his words? Are you believing what he says and acting it out? She goes, I don't know. He said, can I ask you this? Just from chatting with you a little bit. I wonder if you are harboring bitterness towards someone. can't believe you'd even say that. Well, I don't know. I may be wrong, but could you think about it? Let's have breakfast the next day. So Catherine, sure enough, she went uh, that night and was really ticked off at this guy for saying so. And she began to pull out a, a paper and began to write people she might be angry at. The next day she showed up for breakfast and Bruce said, So, um, what do you think? She pulled out five pages. She says... I think I have a problem. The first three pages are about my mom. I said I believed in Christ and believed in his forgiveness, but I have not been allowing that forgiveness to flow into my relationships. And I went through all the things that I felt like my mom ruined my childhood, how angry I was, how mad I was at her. Bruce said he looked at her and she looked 20 years younger. By confessing, by the honesty of beginning to let his words reside in her, she said, I'm going to get free of this. I want to live a different... I've been drinking of the cup of bitterness and unforgiveness. I want to drink of a new cup of freedom. She sent him a letter six months later. So not only have I forgiven my mom, but I've reconciled with my mom. And I'm building a relationship with her. I never thought it was possible. That's what happens when you drink of this cup. Freedom comes. Relationships get healed. As I said, one vine leads to sour grapes. It's good for a while, but it sours. Another wine leads to fine wine. So here's my challenge to us. Here's, I think, the way we could think about this. Trace the fruit in your life to the root of what you're tied to. Trace the fruit that's coming out of your life to the root 
What does it look like? Let me put some up on the screen just a list of different things. What's coming out of your heart these days in your relationships, in your career with those around you? Is it defensiveness? You see, if you know you're loved, if you know you're fully accepted, if you know that you do things wrong, you, you don't get defensive when people say, I think you might have done something wrong because you're not shocked by it. I probably did. If you see defensiveness in your life, you need to trace the wine to your vine. Why am I so defensive? Why am I so cruel? Why do I feel such shame? Why am I short-tempered or avoidant? Why am I unthankful? Why do I find myself being so self-centered? What is it that I'm tied to that makes me act this way? How about being stressed or anxious or lustful? Instead of saying, I need to work harder not to do this, you say, no, I'm tapped into some kind of vine. And I need to change vines. My wine is coming from some vine. I need to change vines. My fruit is tied to some root. I need to change roots. Jesus says, if you begin to abide in me and follow me, you're going to find yourself being more and more teachable. You're going to find yourself being more and more self-controlled, not addicted. You're going to find yourself more and more being patient and kind and gentle. You're going to be tapped into his source of love and faithfulness and peace and good and joyful. And you're not going to take credit for it and get boastful. You're going to say, thank you, the divine provided the sap that I needed for this. So let's take a walk through your vineyard. 2015 is a good chance to look over the landscape of your life and say, as I look over the vineyard in my life, what do you see? What kind of fruit do you see in your life? Do you see worry? Is there a lot of anxiety? Is there a lot of broken pieces and parts to your heart, to your relationship? Do you find patterns that you just haven't been able to break? See, Jesus says the secret to life is doing what I say, and when you put it in motion, it will bring freedom to your life. The secret to life is abiding in me and letting me reside in you. When you look at your vineyard, do you see things that are scrumpled up and torn? Do you see a lack of grapes and a lack of fruit? What do you see in your life and... What would you like to see? Let's take a walk through your vineyard. Take a walk through mine. Maybe you want to ask yourself, what am I bitter about? Who am I bitter at? Why isn't there better fruit over here? Why do I find myself feeling so alone? Why do I look at my life and I, and I just react by being defensive or stressful? Or why, why do I get so angry so quickly? Say, God, I want my vineyard to change. I want to tap into something real. And I want to give you access to anything you want in my life. You put your finger on it. I can't do it. I can't bear fruit on my own. I want to tap into you and ask you to bring freedom. I need some joy over here. Could you grow some joy over here? God, could you change the new year for me as I begin to follow you? Will you give me the strength, the comfort, the peace that I need to walk in you? You see, the secret to life is twofold. It's doing whatever he says. And it's abiding in him. His vine leads to fine wine. Well, maybe today you want to tap into a new vine for a new year. So I'll lead you in a prayer and a way to do that. Say, God, I want that new secret. I want the secret of the vine in my heart. So you bow your heads with me and maybe you just want to say it this way. 
Say, God, I've been letting negativity abide in me, reside in me. Maybe it's God, I've been letting unforgiveness reside in me. God, I've been letting discontentment control me. Maybe, God, I've I've taken some cup that was good, family, career, and I've made it into an ultimate thing. And it's led to sour grapes. God, I need your forgiveness. But more than that, I need to tap into your strength. God, I don't even know what it means to reside in you. I'm not sure what it means to abide in you. But this morning, I'm going to believe and I'm going to trust that what you offer can deliver on what I've been chasing. Fill me with your joy. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your generosity and put an impression upon my heart of your peace. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for who you are and the rest you offer in our souls. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here for part one of Clash of the Titans. You're not going to want to miss any of the next six weeks. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. We'd love to greet you and put a name with a face. Third door on your left is the hearth room. Thanks again. We'll see you all next week.